11 verses in this text of Scripture. And uh, today we come to verses 12 and 13. We'll only get two verses, but for context, let me read to you and with you Romans 8, verse 12 through 15. Romans 8, verse 12, Therefore, Paul writes, Brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if we live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Great passage of Scripture. In fact, uh, Romans chapter 8 is one of the great chapters in the whole of the Bible. Uh, this last week in uh, reading and preparing for this particular text of Scripture, I ran across these two clippings. Listen to them as I read them to you. The first one is about William James. He's a psychologist and a writer, and he believed that every person ought to do an unpleasant job or task every day just to keep himself in what he called moral trim. And his idea was the moral muscles grow with exercise and use. If you want them to be strong, then use them to resist and so forth. He talks about the challenges of daily routines and whatever. And so he says, pick something you don't enjoy doing. Well, he gave the illustration of which I'm sure some of you have heard before. It's about the mythological case of the boy who went out as a small child and uh, was with his father in the field, and he picked up a newborn calf. And his father said, every day you need to come to the field and pick up the calf. And so every day the boy went out and lifted the calf in his arms. Since the calf weighs, his weight increased only a little each day, the young boy did not notice the increase. And so by continually lifting the calf day after day, his strength grew, as did the calf's weight. So that in fact, when the calf was full grown and a young bull, the boy was able to lift the bull. That's what they call, in simple terms, ability. It's nurtured ability in the classroom. Nurtured ability. It means you learn to do something by doing it every single day. People who uh, try to develop muscles or try to lose weight. It's not something you do once a week. It's something you do all the time. And you do. It is a learned ability. Ability. Keep that before you. Here's another one. This article comes along the same line. It says, when Pompeii was destroyed by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, there were many persons buried in the ruins who were afterward found in very unique and different positions. There were some found in deep vaults, as if they had gone there for security when the volcano erupted. There were some found in the lofty chambers. But where did they find the Roman sentinel? They found him standing at the city gate, where he had been placed by the captain, with his hands still grasping his weapon. And there, while the earth shook beneath him with the earthquake, and there, while the floods of ash and cinder and lava overwhelmed him, he has stood his post. And there, after a thousand years, by the archaeologists, he was found. The structures of his bones indicated that he never even buckled a knee. He had stood erect and literally been buried in that lava. Interesting, that's what we call obligation. Ability and obligation. Two words that come out of the text that's before us here in Romans chapter 8. What's interesting about these two things, ability and obligation, is that more often than not they're tandem 
and they come together at the same time to the same person. What it is is to say in maybe a language that you're a little more familiar with is that with privilege comes responsibility. You have no privileges in life from which there are no responsibilities. Every privilege bears a responsibility. The fact of the matter is if you become irresponsible in time, you'll lose your privilege. That works anywhere. It can be privileges in, in, in your activities, your social life. If there are privileges and you are irresponsible toward them, you very quickly lose them. That was brought home to me not many weeks ago by uh, uh, a person, officially of the city, who stood in our parking lot, and we were talking, and um, he told me about an incident at the new skateboard park just downtown by the uh, Law Enforcement Center. There's a new skateboard park there. And uh, the young people bring their skateboards, and they get on those ramps, and they, they, they skate there. They used to come here at the New Life Baptist Church and, and uh, work off of our, uh, our railings. And we took all the railings down, and, and they eventually just ran the sidewalks. And they did for a while and even brought ramps up here and did them in the parking lot. We didn't mind that until they began to leave a lot of stuff afterward. And it was at that point that we had to make some decisions and did. But anyway, this gentleman who came up one day, official of the city, was standing in our parking lot. And he told me of an incident at that skateboard park that he said one day the group of kids just came in. And for whatever reason, and he didn't understand why, they just simply beginning to throw down all the trash that they had. That is, they drink Coke and they throw the Coke bottles down. They eat candy and they threw the wrappers down. And they have containers down there for trash, but nobody used them. And so as the end of the day came about, the the whole property was trashed, he said. And this gentleman said, uh, to the credit of the man who operates the park, when the day came the next day for him to open up and get going, he refused to open it. He waited until all the young people came and gathered to get into the skate park. And when they all got outside the gate, as it were, he simply said to them, there'll be no skateboarding today until all the paper and trash is picked up off the area. And they said, are you crazy? And he said, no, I'm serious. And he stood his ground. And the word was from this official of the city that indeed he in fact stood there refusing anybody entrance until they said, okay, we'll clean it up. And they did. And they got to skate. Now I applaud the guy. As far as I'm concerned, he ought to have a ribbon. He ought to have a badge. He ought to be a police officer, you know. My point is it's so easy for people to take, I guess, advantage of privileges and ignore responsibility. Well, when you come to the scriptures, that just can't happen. And and it's not just a good idea that it doesn't happen. It's set in cement that it can't happen. Let me point out a couple things. First off, in verses 9 through 11, which we covered over the last few weeks of Romans chapter 8, in verses 9 through 11, Paul had written these words. He says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. He is saying that in, in regard to people who profess to know the Lord, you are not under the flesh. If, in fact, the Holy Spirit of God indwells you, that means you're not under its control. You don't have to do that which your flesh wants to do just because you're alive. 
if you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. So Paul is saying in verse number 9, Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, grant you, he is not of Christ. Verse number 10. If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 11. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. The first thing you need to see in verses 9 through 11, that you have the Holy Spirit if you're truly born again. That's what it says. If you've really been born again, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, and you're going to heaven when you die, and you will die, it is not an issue, and uh, members of the New Life Baptist Church know we hammer on this hard around here. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Everybody's going to die in this room, including this preacher. So you're going to die. The issue is very simple. When you die, are you going to heaven? And you won't be going to heaven unless you have the Holy Spirit. And you can tell whether you have the Holy Spirit or not, at least by one way, according to the text of verses 9 through 11, is whether you're under control of the flesh or you're indwelt by the Spirit. That's the options. Which controls your life? Does the Holy Spirit that indwells you when you say you're a Christian, does the Holy Spirit direct your path? Or do you do what you do because, quote, you want to do it and it's just a natural thing to do? Well, if you do the natural thing, you're living under the nature thing. And the nature thing is that your nature is the flesh. We were born that way and we die that way apart from the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the indwelling spirit. So this verse of scripture is saying, first of all, you have the Holy Spirit. That's ability. You get me? That's ability. You can do what you ought to do because of what you've been given. You've been given God's Holy Spirit. That's only one part of the equation. There are lots more that He's given you to make it possible for you to live the victorious Christian life. But you have the ability to do it. It begins with salvation and the receiving of the Holy Spirit. You get me? Ability. Don't forget it. Then verses 12 through 16, we're going to be talking about obligation. Obligation. Ability and obligation. And the word obligation is not too strong. You say, wait a minute, you, you, salvation is free. Yep, it's a gift. Yep. But there are obligations once you come to faith in Christ. Obligations. You can call it duty. Our songbook calls it duty. Duty demands it. There are certain things that duty demands. There are certain things as being an American citizen. It's not just good you do. It's an obligation that you do. Being a Christian has its obligations, but it does not uh, obligate you to anything that God does not first provide you the ability to do. That's the good news. You'd never ask to do anything in the realm of the Christian faith. Never asked to be doing anything in the realm of the Christian faith that God does not first provide the ability to do. Never. You're never asked to do anything out of the flesh. In fact, in the scriptures, God hates the flesh. God has already condemned the flesh. And it is impossible to please God without faith, which comes out of a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And I say to you, the circumstances here Paul sets forth is that first, verses 9 through 11, is the ability. But then verses 12 through 16 is the obligation. That's when the Holy Spirit has you. You have the Holy Spirit, that's ability. When the Holy Spirit has you... That carries out obligation. And I say that because therein lies a choice. You see, you'll, you'll still get to choose whether you want him to control your life or not. Now, you can be saved and just not be compliant with God. And so what these verses of scriptures are going to deal with is ab ability and obligation. So you don't miss the whole point here. Let me um, state to you that through the scripture, it's an 
there are often clearly defined paths marked out in the Bible for every believer. If you say today, Pastor Henry, I have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I know beyond a shadow of a doubt when I die, as die I will, I'm going to heaven. I know I am. I've trusted Christ, and I'm certain of that. Then let me tell you, you have some obligations, not choices, obligations that you must take care of. Let me share them with you. There are, there are several, and yea, verily, there are thousands, thousands in the epistles that we couldn't dare take the time to go through each one of them. But let me just take an overview of the New Testament and give you some of the obligations to which you, my friend, are committed to if you say you know Christ as Savior. First off, if you were looking, and you don't have to turn if you just want to listen, but listen carefully. John chapter 15 and verse number 4. John 15, 4 is not counted as one of the great profound verses in the whole of the Bible, but it is a profound verse which, in fact, if we obeyed, would eliminate a lot of the trouble the individual believer has. John 15, 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. The verse is very clear. This is a command. Anything that's a command has the potential of a insubordinated effort, meaning I can say, no, I'm not going to do that. So therein lies an obligation. God sets it up in John 15, 4 of saying, you need to abide in Christ. Well, what's abiding in Christ? Well, he gives the illustration here of it being a, a, a vine and the branches. And you can't get anything off this tree unless this vine abides with this branch so that the two of them work together in connecting the energies and the strength and the nutrients to produce the fruit that hangs on the limb. And he's saying, some of you are not very spiritually productive simply because you won't abide. You won't abide. You have too many distractions. You, you, you pay too much attention to the things that are around you in the physical world, and you miss the thing that's eternal. Because the things that are eternal are not seen. The things that are temporal are seen. And it's easy in a, in a world of sight to get caught up in everything you see and forget that you're a Christian and your life is dealing with the unseen. And he's saying, you better start thinking about the unseen because that's where you need to abide. You need to abide in me. Who is unseen, you can't see me. You can't see Christ. And you can't see, see the Holy Spirit. You can't feel Him. But the Bible declares that if you've trusted Christ as Savior, He indwells you. That's an act of faith. And He's saying you need to abide in a faith-like life. That's amazing because the Scriptures say, The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. They shall not live by sight. They live by faith. And consequences of that is you, I, we all who profess to know Christ, the Scriptures mandate and obligate us that we abide in Christ. Secondly, in Romans chapter 12 and verse number 1 and verse 2, it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Don't kill yourself. Don't beat yourself to death with a, a cat of nine tails and think that your bleeding and your suffering is going to gain anything. Don't do that. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This work or this obligation of presenting ourselves, submitting our bodies to the Lord is a stepping stone to spiritual victory. And the people who don't do it tend to have spiritual defeat. 
He says, present your body as a living sacrifice. Take your body today and say before the Lord, Lord, uh, your Holy Spirit indwells this body already. But sometimes I run counter to what this body and what the Holy Spirit want done. So here today, I present my body as a living sacrifice to you to take it and use it any way you please. And I want it to honor and glorify you for as long as it lives. Oh, I know it's dying, but as long as it's living, I want it to honor and glorify you, my body. There's a third verse, and this was in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 2. And it says simply, moreover, it is required. It's not suggested. It is required. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 2, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. We've been entrusted with some of God's most eternally exciting benefits and privileges. And he's saying that doesn't go unnoticed. As surely as, a, as someone who speeds and, and gets a ticket has to appear in court, uh, you have an appearance. And there will be a place and a time where you'll give an account for what you did with what he gave you. And not just salvation. He's given you a body. If your body is healthy and able to do and to go about, then he's going to hold you accountable for that degree of ability you have in this body that he provided you with. He also provided those who know Christ to save you with the gospel and the privilege and the ability to share it. We are ambassadors for Christ. And he's going to hold you and I accountable for that. What did you do with it? Did you think it was not important? You think that my son died on the cross in vain? Did you think it was just a fun game religion that he went up there, died on the cross, and then we gave you this idea to go and share the gospel and you thought it was optional? He didn't say go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature just to hear his head roar. God said this is an obligation. You're obligated by what you've been given. And what you've been given is a body, a mind, and a heart, and an understanding that the gospel can change people's lives. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also the Greek. You see, the importance of the gospel necessitates that it be given, but higher than that, the command we've been given to share it is an obligation that every believer has. Every believer. Notice something else. 1 Corinthians 15 in verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as you know, as your labor is not in vain in the Lord. May I tell you that 1 Corinthians 15, 58 does not say nor mean that it's uh, important to abound just on Sundays. The ideal is in the, this text of Scripture, you come to church for sure and to Sunday school for sure and you hear what the Bible teaches and the Bible teachers share with you what you ought to know. But then uh, responsibility is yours to go out and be unmovable. And a person in context of what 1 Corinthians 15 is saying, not only the ideal of unmovable, but absolutely steadfast. Holding ground and giving none when it comes to eternal truth. And God's saying... That that's the way I want you. I want Christians to be stable, unmovable people. I don't want a bunch of flim-flam, and I don't want a bunch of flip-flops, and I don't want a bunch of unstable folks. I want you to know what the Bible says, and I want you to stand straight upon it. And that's not just a suggestion. That's an obligation. Who in the world, who in this world would want what we have if what we have is no better than what they've got? And the only way you're going to prove that is if you are steadfast, unmovable, and you're always abounding in the things, the work, the operation of God. 
And that's what the verse is saying, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. And then there's that passage in, in 2 Corinthians. Let me read it to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Ryan touched on this, I think, the other week. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 14, he says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? Verse 15, And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? Verse 16, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And later verse says unto myself. That passage of Scripture is an obligation. It's not just a good idea to come out from among lost people and be separate and distinct. What the Bible is saying here is that God wants His people to be easily distinguishable from those that are not His kids. He wants it to be such that your acts, your language that you use, the language that you do not use, the music you listen to, the entertainment you have and seek, and the purpose of your very life would be so distinguishable from the lost world that anybody around you could say, this guy, this lady, this family, this man, this woman, these people are Christian people. They fear God. They don't fear man. They don't think they got to fit in or they're not going to be happy campers. They don't care about fitting in here. They've got enough sense to know that they're only going to be here a short while. This is just our pilgrimage. This is just a short journey. Life at its longest point is a short one. And if you don't believe that, you just go to any nursing home in this city and ask these people, how long has it been, how long does it feel like you've been uh, uh, when you were a child? Same old, same old, same old phrase. Seems like yesterday. Just like yesterday, I was a kid. Just like yesterday, I was a young girl or young boy, roaming the hills, playing games, having fun. And now it is that I'm passing into the sunset. Well, I tell you, my friend, the fact of the matter is we are going to die. And that's not to be a morbid thought. That's an exciting thing to me. This is not my home. Tennessee is where I was born physically. I was born spiritually into the family of God. God never once said, this is my world. In fact, he often had talked about this being the domain of the devil. My home is in heaven. And John 14 assures me he's going to prepare a place for me. And if he's going to prepare a place, he's going to come back and get me one way or another. And this is not home. And so leaving here ought not be the worst thing in the world to you. And yet to talk to some people about dying, you think you talk to them about the bubonic plague. No, you're missing something. You say, well, I just I don't want to die right now. Okay, I accept that. Then do what will count in eternity. Be busy about the Father's business. Don't waste your life on about a non-essential stuff. And that's the bad thing about staying around here. The longer some people stay here, the more attached to this place they become and the more entrenched they become with its philosophies, its ideologies, and everything about it. And so God says, one day I'm going to get you out of that thing. But while you're there, I want you to be busy about the Father's business. By the way, I ran across this in an article this week in a magazine. It's good. This guy says, from a worldview perspective, we must remember that every book, every song, every film has its roots of worldview. The media and these media are telling us to believe certain truths about the world, to adopt certain values, and to allow certain behaviors. 
As thinking Christians, we must look beyond the facade and see what most people cannot see and uncover what is there. As Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, test or approve all things, we cannot let anything go by us or into our minds and hearts without discerning its meaning and its purpose. And I'm here to tell you there's never been a song written or song sung. There has never been a film made that did not have a sermon behind it. And every one of those truths that they're projecting is their worldview. Every ungodly rock song that has ever been written has an ideology of values written into it. It's trying to tell our young people that you can live like you wish, do what you want, and it does not matter. This is just a short ride, and then we change horses. That's right, you change horses, but you also change worlds. And those people who reject the Lord Jesus Christ in this world and die in that state spend eternity in a devil's hell. And I don't care what songs in this world say. Otherwise, the God of the Bible has declared that there is a place. And men, women, boys, and girls who reject the Lord Jesus Christ and His provision of salvation spend all eternity in a devil's hell. Is that exciting to me to talk about? Absolutely not. Because I'm sure, I am certain, I have loved ones who just as surely as my parents are in heaven, I have relatives who are in hell. People who rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. People who thought that it was not important to bow at the feet of the Lord Jesus and trust Him as their Savior. They thought, oh, I, I do the best I can. I work as hard as I can. I go to church all the time. I read my Bible. I pray. That's all irrelevant. If there's never been a time in your life where you come to understand I am a sinner, Christ is the only Savior, and I right here, right now, bow humbly before Him and acknowledge Him as my Savior and my Lord for as long as I live and exist. You see, this world has concocted its own formula for salvation. And its value system reflects that. The people who teach our young people evolution. The fact of the matter is, evolution is a joke. You know, you take nothing, multiply toward nothing, and you come up with something. It just doesn't work. And the fact of the matter is, there's only one reason why the world ever got off onto evolution in the first place. To eliminate the God of heaven who wrote the word of God to give us direction to life. That's the only reason evolution even exists. It's not a true science, and anybody who has a brain in between his ears knows that. What the world does not want to hear is that there's a God in heaven to whom everybody in this room and everybody in this city and everybody in this state and everybody in this country has to answer to. And they don't want to hear that. And the safest, easiest, simplest, and most intellectual way to do it is how some scientists say, Well, I'll tell you how you got here. It wasn't God. You come out of a primeval pond down there. A bunch of things came together and they just happened to be that you were in the right place at the right time and here you are. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. You see, it's awfully easy for them to just eliminate God with their intellectual scientific statements and jargon. The reality is this. They didn't create Him and they can't do away with Him. He sits this morning on the throne of heaven. He graciously has given us His Word. And in that, he's revealed exactly what he expects of us. And these obligations, and as I said, there are so many more, and we could go on for a long time with the matter of obligation. But let me take you back to Romans chapter 8 and deal with our text. Romans chapter 8, and when we come to verse number 12, Paul says in verse 12, Therefore, 
Anytime you run into a therefore in the Scriptures, you need to see what it's there for. It is a, is a stop sign. It's to say we're changing directions here. We're shifting gears. And so from verse number 11 all the way back to verse number 1 where there was a therefore, there's a shifting gears here based on what he's been telling you about the Holy Spirit and about your abilities. So based on those abilities, verse 12 says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. And then he gets into a whole new point here. But let me just point out the fact that the therefore the text he is telling you and me that uh, there is an issue of debt. Debt. What's important here is to note, and I appreciate this very, very much. He says in the text of verse number 12, we are debtors. You should stop there at that comma before you go further. Though the comma may not be inspired, I think it's properly placed. We're debtors. You are a debtor this morning. The text says you're not a debtor to the flesh. I buy that, and I know that. But you are a debtor. You ought to just stop for a moment and think of the debt that you owe in you being where you are spiritually. Now, I recognize you may be sitting here and say, Well, preacher, I'm not a Christian. I'm certainly not a member of your church. I've never been baptized. But you're still, a, I hope, a smart enough, wise enough to understand that you've been blessed if you're even sitting in a church where the preaching of God's Word takes place. There's so many people in the world who have never even seen a Bible, let alone heard one preached. Boy, how God has blessed America in giving us churches where we can go and sit and even in our laps open up a book called the Bible, the revelation of God Himself. You're a debtor, all right. Oh, you may not know how much you owe, but you owe much as I do. Born in a free society under the auspices of God-fearing people who established this country so that we'd have opportunity to hear from God through His Word. So here, I'm grateful also about debt. I'm grateful that the New Life Baptist Church is debt-free. And, of course, we're talking finances there. We've said it before. I, I give God the glory for the fact that New Life Baptist Church is debt-free. This church has no debt. I'm grateful for that. I really am. That's no small thing with me. I'm grateful to the New Life Baptist Church family who was God used to give money so that we could build that building next door, debt-free. I'm grateful. I am thankful, and I am humbled by that. But I'm also aware that I need to do in my own finances the right thing. And so Judy and I pray about work on being debt-free. I think it's a, I, be, I believe it's a biblical goal, and I think you ought to work on that. I think it would be good for your family to be debt-free. You ought not be a debtor to any man if you can get away from it. Let God provide your needs and live within the means and go from that. And I know that's not always exactly possible, but I encourage you as much as you can toward it. But that's not what this text is about. This text is not about the debt we owe America. It's not about the debt we owe for regarding the fact of all the provisions we've had. This passage of Scripture is saying we are debtors, but not, just not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. What Paul's point here is, it's a child of God that is indwelt by the Spirit of God. We have no obligation, therefore, to the flesh for anything. Every good thing provided for you did not come through the flesh. It came because of, you're a Christian, indwelt by God's Spirit. That's his point. Keep before you that the flesh is not the skin on the body on which your clothes are hanging. That's not what he's talking about here. 
You need to understand what he's talking about in all this context of what flesh is. Flesh is, as my definition would say, is that unholy compilation of human desires, ungodly motives, purposes, words, and deeds that sin encourages to be carried out through your body. That's what the flesh is. And the fact of the matter is to live after or according to the flesh is to literally be ruled or controlled by all this compilation of things that are in your body. It's important to know such people, Romans chapter 8 and verse number 9 says, are not born again believers. People who are controlled by that compilation of flesh are not born again. See verse number 9 of chapter 8, it says, but ye are not in the flesh or self some translate after the flesh. You're not in the flesh or after the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. You see, the point he's making is the true born-again believer is not under the control of the flesh. Will you sin? Sure, you will sin. But will you be under its control so that you can't say no to it? No, you will not be. And that's what he's done. He's broken the power of sin. The song says, broke the power of canceled sin. When Christ died on the cross, it made it possible for anybody and everybody to trust Christ as Savior. When people made professions of faith, believed on Christ as Savior, canceled sin had no impact on your life. You could say no to any sin anytime you choose to. It becomes your burden. It becomes your obligation. Something else to be noted here. You're not in and after the flesh but you have the Holy Spirit. That's what verse 9 says at the end. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So it's this way. Either the flesh controls you or the Holy Spirit indwells you, but not both at the same time. That's what he's saying. You're either indwelt by the Spirit of God or you're controlled by the flesh, but you can't have them both ways at the same time. It's either one way or the other. Look at verse 13. He says, Then for if we live after the flesh, you'll die. That's a given. You live after the flesh, you live according to the flesh, you'll die. Some believe this is what Paul was talking about. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, he was talking to the people there, what we use and read in our communion service. And Paul said, There are some of you folks sitting here or here uh, that are sickly, and some have even gone to sleep. And his point was that they had eaten of the Lord's Supper unworthily, or in some cases they had lived in an ungodly way. And he said, therefore, they're gone. They're, they're off the scene. What his point could well, and some believe, is talking about is a sin unto death. First John chapter 5 talks about that sin unto death. Some people believe that's what is talked about here in verse number 13. For if you live after the flesh, you're going to die. You commit those sins that... God says, enough's enough. I, I, I've warned you, I've chastened you, and I'm going to take you home. That, that could well be here. I just don't believe that's what he's saying. What I believe the man is saying, and what Paul wrote under inspiration, I rather believe is very simply this. I said that I believe the person, the man, the woman, the boy, the girl, whose life is characterized, controlled, or dominated by the things of the flesh, who follow after the flesh, is first of all not a true believer is spiritually dead. And I believe that fits what Romans chapter 8, verse number 5 said when he said this, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. 
I say it therefore, when Paul was preaching, speaking, writing to the church at Rome, I believe he was telling these people there may be some folks who had intermingled with the church fellowship who may be a part of that church. And he's saying to those people, it does not matter what religious knowledge you have. It does not matter what church that you attend. Nor does it matter how loud that you declare that you've been saved by the grace of God. If you're controlled by the flesh and not indwelt by the Spirit, you're going to die. And I believe he's talking about the second death. I believe he's talking about a death that is beyond dying physically. Because I think he's talking in the spiritual realm in this whole thing. So if they do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, though they think they have, they will perish in their sin just like every other non-Christian and experience the second death, which is separation from God. I believe that's what Paul is saying. People who are not truly born again. You see, we've got this ideal in America. If we just say it, it's okay. You've been listening to too much of those, if you believe that, to those uh, name it and claim it preachers on television. You'll forgive me, but you can't name and claim anything. You know, what you get, you get by the good grace and good hand of God. And He gives and provides for His people. And He's promised to supply all your needs according to His riches and glory. But it's not a thing like you operating with God like a bellboy and telling Him what you want. And He runs to the cover and gets it and brings it to you hand delivered. It's not a name it and claim it kind of deal. So I say to you, don't you think about that when you come to faith in Christ. Some people think, well, I, I, I said when I was a, a young kid, I, I believed on Jesus Christ as my Savior. And, and I believe that. Well, then the, here's the deal. Are you controlled by the flesh? Are you controlled by the flesh? Do you do more of what the flesh wants done than you do the Spirit? Who controls your life? That's his point. And his point is that it's easy in a church setting to just take what people say and say, well, they say they're Christians. Now, they may say it, that's not the issue. It doesn't matter what you say. It matters who controls you. Who controls you? Who controls you? Next week, when we get to verse number 14, it'll be the matter leads you. Who leads you? For as many as are led, verse 14 said, by the Spirit, they're the sons of God. All through this text of Scripture, it gives the criteria by which you can judge whether you're a born-again believer or not. And the criteria before us in verse number 13 is, is simply this. If you live after the flesh, you do not belong to God. You don't belong to Him. And I say that to you regrettably. I, I wish you didn't have to say that. I wish you could just say, well, you say you're saved, you're saved. But God says no, because the reality here is, if the Holy Spirit's not indwelling them, then I can't change them. And that's what salvation is all about, changing you from glory to glory to one day there will be a change in the moment in the twinkling of an eye, and you'll be changed forever in the likeness of Christ. Look at the second part of verse 13. He says in verse 13, for if, and that's a big word, if we live after the flesh, you're going to die or you shall die. But if, there's another side of this if, if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you're going to live. If you mortify the deeds of the body, you're going to live. And it's important that you note and underline, if ye through the Spirit. What he's about to tell you you need to do is not humanly possible apart from Holy Spirit's help. So don't miss it in the text. It says through the Spirit. This is not something you can accommodate, you can accomplish, and you can make it work. It won't work. 
You can't turn over a new leaf and be a good, godly Christian. It won't work. You've got to have spiritual help. And that's why people can't just say they're going to be saved and be saved. You can't get saved until the Holy Spirit has convicted you of your sin. And you can't save yourself. It takes the Holy Spirit's regenerating power to accomplish that. And then you can't live the Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit helping you day by day mortify the deeds of the flesh. You, through the Spirit, can do what you've been told to do. You've been told to mortify the deeds of the flesh. You can only do it by the ability that God gives you through His Spirit. And this is a, a very important thing to remind you of at this point. First off, don't forget and don't ever get away from the fact that salvation is 100% a work of God, not yours or mine. 100%. Salvation is not a 50-50. We often say marriage is a 50-50. I, yeah, I don't believe that. But I'll guarantee you salvation is not a 50-50 deal. It's a 100% work on God's side. 100%. So don't get away from it from this point because that too is included here in the ideal of what the Holy Spirit. The only way you can carry out all the biblical obligations is to receive the spiritual abilities. Now notice what he says. Through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, then you shall live. Remind you, you have no debt, no obligation to the flesh because all it'll do to you is wreck you, ruin you, and eventually kill you. So you've got to either kill the flesh in that sense, kill off these deeds of the flesh, or they're going to kill you. That's his point. We do have an obligation. We do have an obligation here to submit to the Holy Spirit as he helps us to mortify the deeds, the acts of the flesh that are carried out in our bodies. That's what you do here. You do have an obligation to that. And if you're a believer, you're to be a killer. Yeah, that sounds strange, doesn't it? If you're a believer, you're a killer. You're to kill. You see the word mortify there? That's a word that comes from a funeral home. It's the word from which we get our word mortician. It's a, it's, you're to put to death. You're to, to take this which is, is, um, is dying and to kill it. And you're to put it in a state of death. And literally, it means to erase off, the, off of existence. And so what he's telling us is we mortify, we kill, we destroy the deeds of the body. And uh, by the way, I do not believe this means for you to sit down when you get home today or even before you leave and take out a piece of paper and simply take a pen and begin to write and list all the deeds of the flesh and the uh, works of the flesh that you need to address. And then you, like a hunter, begin to stalk these one by one in your life and kill them off. I don't think that's what it says. I don't think that's what it means. Let me tell you what I think it means, and yea, verily, don't think. I'm, a, I'm confident that this is what it means. It literally means for you to focus your attention on submitting to the Holy Spirit to such degree that the desires, the deeds, the works of the flesh will get no expression or no, as it were, takers on you expressing the deeds of the flesh. You see what I'm saying? Let me show you from a Bible verse. Look, if you would, to Galatians chapter 5. This is what Galatians chapter 5 is saying. Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 16 is stating this truth. Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 16 says simply, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So focus on your walking in the Spirit, and you won't have to worry about killing off, mortifying the deeds of the flesh. But it gets better. Verse 17. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. 
verse 18, but if ye be led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murder, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, verse 21 says, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things... Those people that are under the control of the flesh and then accomplish these deeds on an ongoing, continuous basis of being a pattern of their life. His point is, in this verse of Scripture, these who do such things shall not, shall not, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. People who practice this, these, these are just the control of their life. They're under this control of the flesh to the degree that this is their pursuit of life. He says these people won't get it to heaven. They just won't make it. Pure and simple, end of discussion. So he says, obviously, talking to Christian people, but, verse 22, that's the works of the flesh. Verse 19, verse 22 is the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. What his point is, and I think the point that you and I need to take from this, is very simple. When the fruit of the Spirit is produced in, the, in you and me as a believer, the works of the flesh will naturally die away from a lack of expression. But they can't be working together at the same time, same place. So probably one or the other is operative in your life. By the way, how do you come to understand what those things are that even though we don't characterize our lives by sinning often, how do you know as a believer when you do sin? It's something you need to address. Is the Holy Spirit being present? What does He do about that? Well, the first thing you need to understand is that the more of God's Word shines on your life and the more you hear, the more aware you're going to be of your sin. You see, God's light, the light of God's Word shines on your life and mine, and therein lets us know what is sin and what's not. People don't just make a decision what's sin and what's not. God makes that judgment, and He brings it to light in your heart and my life, and, and we deal with it. For instance, let me share with you First John chapter 1, and verse number 6 says this, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So if you're a Christian and you say that you have not sinned or have no sin in your life, he says the first thing that happens, you lie to other people. Then he goes a step further, two verses later, 1 John 1, 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If you're a Christian and you deny that you have sin, he says that you actually deceive yourself. Then he goes two verses later, verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Literally, we lie to God. So you can lie to others, you lie to yourself, and then you lie to God, which is the first, the worst. The fact of the matter is, what he's saying is, there is no Christian who is absolutely, unequivocally pure. So what you have to watch out for, and you have to, what to be very careful for, is when God spotlights something in your life that need be dealt with, that you deal with it. Otherwise... That which we call fellowship with the Lord is sort of darkened and distance is created. And I say to you that this thing is important because there's another side to it. It's not only a matter of, of uh, sin being exposed by God's light, 
there's a need for your sin to be expressed to the Lord of light in the same chapter. Chapter 1, verse number 9 of 1 John, he said, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's God's Word, which is light, that shows us our sin. And then it's the Lord of that light that we need to express it to. And I say express because the Word says confess here. Sometimes we miss the point. It's just not saying, I have sinned. Sometimes we say, well, isn't that what confession is? The Greek word is the word that carries with it the ideal of the same thing, to express the same thing. It literally is the ideal of agreeing with God. When God says something you've done is wrong, just saying I've done wrong is not confessing it. Saying what you said about it is right. I have sinned. See, it's agreeing with God that what he said about it is right. Not just that, oh yeah, okay, I did that. Because in this country, we have television programs that exalt sin, encourage sin, get people to laugh at sin. You see, sin can very quickly become something to you that the Bible does not hold it up to be. But there's one thing for sure in the Christian's life, what God expects to do with it. Verse number 13 again says, He expects you to mortify the deeds of the flesh. By the way, the challenge for you is not today to walk out of here and to do everything you can to make the flesh acceptable to God. That's an impossibility. What your job to leave here today and the obligation you have before God and Almighty God is to simply this, that you simply rather live around and beside all the flesh that you do, your responsibility is not to be overcome by it. You're to mortify those deeds and not allow them to mortify you. And they will kill you. You know, I said it last week or the week before, this person who killed that pastor by choking him to death, you can say what you will about that, but the devil was ultimately behind whatever. You forget, and we sometimes forget, that the devil is an arch enemy of God Almighty, and he wants to kill you. He wants to kill you. He does not want your life to accomplish the purposes for which God left you here on this earth. He wants to kill you. He wants to kill you. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he lies. He's a deceiver. He's our adversary. He's all that. But he wants to kill you. And he'll do everything that he can to do just that. Try to snuff out a life prematurely before, one, they come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, snuff out a life before they accomplish what God wants them to accomplish that he had set for them to accomplish. I'm telling you, the devil hates God, and he hates anybody attached to him. I hope today that you understand that you're important to God or you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be here. Not just in New Life Baptist Church. You wouldn't be left here on this earth if God were not pleased for you to do so. He's left you here with reason and purpose. So my first thing to you would be to ask you a simple question. Are you certainly sure of your relationship to Jesus Christ? Have you believed on him as your personal Savior? I heard something this last week that was a factual thing. Maybe you heard it also about the, uh, the tsunami. Uh, I've often had often thought that, you know, there was absolutely no warnings and so forth. And I was incorrect. If you heard the news this week, you heard it too. Before this tsunami hit, one hour before it hit, one hour, there was an email sent from Hawaii and told the people in this whole area 
there's been an earthquake and a tidal wave is heading your way. And the fellow who got it didn't open it. Didn't read it. It was an email. When they asked him, don't you understand? If you had just opened this thing and read it, you could have saved almost 150,000 people's lives. His words, I'm not into waves. I studied earthquakes. I'm not into waves. I studied earthquakes. You forgive me, but that's a cheap reason to let 150,000 people die. You see, if somebody had the truth, it's immoral not to share it. And for me to stand up here this morning and to not tell you, if you do not know Christ to save you, that their place waits you, call hell, would be immoral. Because it's the truth. It's the truth. But I'd be amiss to tell you, or fail to tell you, there's a place called heaven that's been prepared for people who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And this morning, I invite you, if you have never trusted Christ as Savior, or if you have and have doubts, if you have questions, this message was never intended to create doubt. It's intended to give assurance of absolute Bible basis for what you believe. It's not enough to say, I just believe, and that's, that's just, I just believe, I just believe. The Bible sets forth evidence that ought to be present if it's true. And Paul continues the same line of reasoning next week when he talks about people that are led by the Spirit. If you're led by the Spirit, you're a child of God. If you're not led by the Spirit, you're not a child of God. Simple as that. How is it with you? Who controls your life, the flesh or the indwelling Spirit? If God's spoken to your heart, then it's time for you to make a decision. Where do you stand in your relationship to Him? Our Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we're thankful for the truth the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of God, has laid bare before us. And this morning when we come to this text of Scripture, we thank you that it sets forth the evidence for a person to know Christ as Savior, the proof, verification, as it were, for our being saved. We thank you for giving us those statements. That is, those who are not under the flesh, but indwelt with the Spirit. They are the children of God. We thank you for those statements, and we ask you this morning to help every man, woman, boy, and girl in this building who has made profession of faith Help them to be absolutely sure that that salvation is anchored in Christ and Christ alone and that it's real and it's not imagined and it's not was not just an emotional reaction, but it was a reaction to conviction. Conviction that we were born sinners and needed a Savior. And I pray this morning, drive this truth deep into our hearts. Help there to be no one leave this building today in doubt about their relationship to you. And help us to help them who would inquire. If we can be a help and a blessing to them, let us do so. I pray now, help those who need Christ come and allow us to help them. Those who want to come for baptism, church membership, for prayer, whatever their need is. Help us to direct them through your word to the answer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? And if you need a hymn, hymn book, turn to 282, Just As I Am. As we sing the first stanza, if God has spoken to your heart, we'd invite you to come this morning. First and foremost, if you have never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. And secondly, if you know Christ as Savior and God has spoken to you about other matters, then we're here to help you. We want to be a blessing to you. And we have folks who are waiting to assist any way they can. 
So if God has spoken, you just obey Him. That'll always get the job done right. And you'll leave here right. Hope you'll come. 282 verse 1. Let's sing together and you simply obey the Lord. Would you? As we sing. Just as I am without one plea. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? with me for just a moment. We have some guests who come to join with us here at the church and that will be taken care of. But all heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Just a moment. If God has spoken to your heart this morning about specifically about uh, your salvation, about your relationship with Jesus Christ. And you say, Pastor Henry, God's spoken to my heart maybe before, but this morning for sure. Would you please pray for me that I'll come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I promise you I'll not embarrass you. And I will not address you. I will leave that between you and the Holy Spirit. But I would love to pray for you. If God has spoken to your heart, either today or days past, and you say, please pray for me that I'll come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, would you just simply lift up your hand and allow me to remind myself to pray for you in the days ahead? Anyone at all, man, woman, boy, or girl, please pray for me that I'll come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyone at all. Thank you. Our Father, I pray, seal the message to the hearts of our people and our guests. We thank you for bringing them here and bringing all of us here this morning. We're grateful for that. And we pray right now that you may bless every heart that's received the truth. May they receive it richly and may it dwell in them richly and may it change them from glory to glory. Bless, I pray, Father, Mr. and Mrs. Lynch, thank you for their coming today. I pray your richest blessings upon them and pray that you can use us as a church to be a blessing to them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you wait just a moment, please? If I'll get Mr. and Mrs. Lynch to stand. Mr. and Mrs. Lynch, if you'll stand, and we'll get this taken care of in just a moment. Mr. Lynch, you have received the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Is that correct? Yes. And you've been baptized by immersion. Is that correct? You're coming today with your wife to join fellowship with the New Life Baptist Church. Is that correct? God bless you. Mrs. Lynch, you've received the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Is that correct? Been baptized by immersion. And you're in agreement with your husband to join fellowship with the New Life Baptist Church. God bless you so much. All in favor of receiving Mr. and Mrs. Lynch into our fellowship, would you make it known by raising your hands, please? All opposed, like sign. Mr. and Mrs. Lynch, thank you so much for being with us and being part of the Church. We welcome you here. We're glad you come to be part of this church. Family. 
I want you to stand here at the front of my mind. And our folks, I'd like for you to come by and give them the right hand of fellowship this morning and welcome Mr. and Mrs. Linson to our fellowship. We've appreciated their coming to be with us, and it's an honor to have them come and join. It always blesses the church uh, family and the fellowship to have folks entrust us with their spiritual lives, and I appreciate their doing that this morning. So as we're dismissed this morning, you're a member of our fellowship, please come by and welcome these folks into our church family if you would. Our Father, we thank you for this hour, and thank you for everyone who's come, and thank you again for Mr. and Mrs. Lentz being a part of our fellowship. We're grateful and thankful, and I pray your richest blessing upon them. Help us to be to them what they need and be a blessing to them. Thank you again for all of our guests here this morning. Please bless them as they go. Give them safety, protection, along with the members of our fellowship. And thank you for our members being faithful in their places and praying and serving and working in this place that we might bring honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed.